0: Um, If you have your Bibles and you want to use them to read, we will have some of the scripture put up in front of us, but we're in the book of Romans. As you guys uh, who've been around for the last several weeks know, we are still in chapter one of Romans. We are continuing to explore Paul's explanation in this book for why we need the gospel. Paul is explaining in chapter one why we need the gospel, why we need God's grace, why we need a righteousness from God to cover us, why we can't produce a righteousness of our own, but we need one through his son as a gift to cover us. And it's, it's encouraging to note, this book is written not just for unbelievers, it's written to a church in Rome. These are Christians. These are redeemed, regenerate, born again people. They know something of the gospel and have been changed by Jesus Christ. But Paul still ministers truth to them that they need. They need to see things more clearly and more deeply than they do. And that same thing is true of us. And so he's preaching to them both the gospel and in order to make that gospel relevant to them in their understanding, And in order to help them cherish the gospel in their hearts, he's telling them now in chapters one, two, and most of three, why they need the gospel. And this part of Romans one, two, and three is not happy news. It's not good news. It's bad news that makes the good news good. The good news is good, but it's the bad news that makes us understand why the good news is good. And so we've been trying to gear up for that. We've used different analogies of surveying the Titanic and making sure we're in the right ship of understanding that Paul is not trying to preach these difficult things to discourage us, but to ultimately make the encouragement of the gospel relevant. So I'm gonna read verses 18 through 25, which will be inclusive of what we're gonna look at today. So would you please uh, listen with me together as as we hear God's word through the apostle Paul. Starting verse 18 through 25, this is Paul explaining why we need the gospel of God's righteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I need help. We need help please help. Bless your name today. Glorify your name among us. Grant us to see you better for having been in front of your word. Protect me from preaching poorly and with error. Protect your people from being infected with error. Give me grace, Lord God, to humble myself before your word and preach what is here Help me also to be careful about my time that I might not um, make it too hard for people to stay attentive. And please, God, minister to your bride today through your holy word. Lord, I need your help so much. We all need your help. I feel it very much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now I skipped, as I read that passage, can we put it back up there? I skipped the um, The verse 24, which talks about God's response to our rejection of him. And that's going to be a whole other sermon or two. Um, But today we're not going to be talking about what God has done in response to our rejection of him. We're going to explore the rejection itself. And um, verse 25 really sums up everything that Paul is saying so far. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God's angry with humanity for this reason. His wrath, Paul says, is against us because we exchange the glory of God for a lie. We trade him for his creation. His creation's good, it's beautiful, it's a gift. But rather living with him in the glory that he deserves, we subvert him underneath the things he gives. And we'll, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The fact that God is, what that does to us, and of course, the fact that it engenders his, his wrath. John Murray, a great theologian in, a, in America for um, in the middle of the 20th century, most of his life was that, that time. He, he summed up God's wrath this way. He said, God's wrath is his holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. God's wrath is his holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. And as we go on in this chapter, Paul will explain how God's wrath, which will reach its fullest expression in a final judgment on mankind that's still to come, is already right now being partially poured out in ways that we can see now before that final judgment. And that's what we'll be talking about uh, after today. But today, we are explaining furthermore, as we've done the last, as we did last week, why God is responding to mankind with wrath. God's wrath, Paul says, is his response to our unrighteous suppression of the truth about him. That was the whole idea of last week, The sermon last week was called Our Suppression of Truth and Unrighteousness. God's wrath, Paul says, is being poured out because he has shown us his divine nature and his eternal power through what he has made. And that divine nature, his eternal power, despite our protestations, are evident to the uneducated and the PhD alike through creation, through what God has made. In other words, the Apostle Paul asserts that all of humanity intuitively recognizes that we live in a created world that must have come from a glorious creator. We all know that we did not create ourselves or the world, which is the means of sustaining us this moment. We intuitively know that that means there is a divine creator. That's what Paul is boldly asserting. He's asserting what Psalm 19 proclaims where the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They pour forth speech night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them yet their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the end of the world. Creation all around us declares there is a God. There is a maker. There is a creator. He is eternal in power. He is divine. He is glorious. And he deserves our honor and our thanks But Paul says, humanity has repressed, suppressed this truth in unrighteousness. That is, we've done it, we've done it not innocently or not accidentally, but because we do not naturally want God to be God over us. We want to be our own masters. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions in the study of Romans about who is Paul talking to? You know, there's a sense in which he's moving through history. You'll see that as, as, as we walk through this chapter. You, you'll recognize elements of primitives, cultures, and societies in this passage. But then he says, we, or he says, you, or he... he 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 doesn't exactly say I'm talking to the Cretans or I'm talking to the Irish or I'm talking to the Jewish nation in chapter one, although he will talk about that in chapter two. But the reality is Paul is talking to the whole human family. He's talking about the human experience as if as if almost as if we we're one common person together. What he says applies to cultures and nations long past and to cultures and nations going on now, it applies to communities and to individuals. It's the repeated dynamic between God and sinful humanity who rejects God apart from Christ. It's the repeated dynamic between God and sinful humanity, but for his grace being at work. This is what happens when grace and mercy are not at work between God and humanity. This is what goes on. And it's as old as the garden. If you guys remember the garden narrative, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted with something very specific. He didn't entice them with wealth for they had all they could want from God's generous heart. He didn't entice them with joy for their lives were only joyful up until the day they were tempted by him. He didn't entice them with romantic pleasures for their intimacy together was completely satisfying them to them. He didn't entice them with fame or the praise of others for they had the blessing of the greatest audience approving of them in their friendship with God. He didn't entice them with any of these things. No, in a sense, the serpent enticed Adam and Eve with the one thing they did truly lack. He tempted them with their lack of being God. That's what he tempted them with. He told them, God is jealous of you, he's a jealous liar, keeping you from the true understanding of right and wrong that God alone has. And he told them, if you disobey God, you won't die as God says. If you go your own way, you will become like God. And tragically, they already were like God in their created character. They had been created in God's image. They had no reason to want anything. They had everything. They had no reason to mistrust God. His rule had been generous and loving and peace giving. But what they did not have, and this is true, what they did not have was all authoritative knowledge and the right thereby to self-authority, to self-governing. They did not have all authoritative knowledge of right and wrong. That truth came from God to them as God saw fit. They did not have self-authoritative knowledge. And this is what the serpent tells them. You can know right and wrong for yourselves. You don't have to receive it from God. You don't have to be under his authority. No, you can become self-professors of what you really need to know so that you can rule yourselves. You won't have to listen to him anymore. And I believe this is what the tree of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented. Would Adam and Eve, would they allow God to be God? Or would they crave Godhood for themselves? Would they reject reality as it was, which the reality as it was and ever will be is you are not God. You are not creator. You are creature. And you don't thereby have the authority to define reality for yourself, by yourself. It must come from the creator. And this is at the center of mankind's suppression of truth. Our desire to go our own way to define life for ourselves, to be the one thing we can never be God ourselves. This is at the core God is creator, and as creator, he has almighty, authoritative, eternal right to rule all things. And that will never, ever change for eternity. Will we live with that? That was the only thing Adam and Eve had to say yes to. They had no rules besides one rule. Will you let God be God? Will you be under him? And they said no. We will decide right and wrong for ourselves. We will do what we want. We will define reality as we decide to define it. And now today, Paul begins in verse 21, explaining the terrible effects of that decision, that impulse that's in all of us. Starting in verse 21, for although they knew God, and go to the next slide, please. Actually, can you go back, Edward, to go back another one? One more? There, that's great. We can probably stay on this for a long time. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul says the result of our suppression of God was that our thinking became futile. That word for thinking in verse 21, it could be translated. They're speculating their reasoning, their processing reality became futile, it became empty. It became useless. It became meaningless. That word for futile can also mean vain, like puffed up with pride for no reason. And listen, this word, the thinking became futile, it has religious connotations. What I mean by that is what became futile, what became broken and useless and meaningless and empty and darkened, it's our thinking in this context about religion. And I don't mean religion like man-made religion. I mean, our thinking about God, our thinking about the universe, our thinking about the fundamental realities of what's most important, including God. And so it's important to keep in mind that Paul is, all that he's stating right now is in the context of religious thinking, thinking about God, an ultimate reality that is sourced in God. So in other words, Paul's not saying that our thinking became futile. And so we didn't know how to hunt anymore or fish anymore. We didn't know how to make clothing or build houses or start fires for warming our food. Or we didn't know how to be doctors or software engineers. No, he doesn't mean that. He means that the consequence of suppressing the truth about God was that our thinking and reasoning powers concerning spiritual things the fundamental, most important things, became broken. Our ability to think and process about God and spiritual reality became broken. Our capacity for reasoning rightly about God became futile and empty. It's as if in choosing to look away from God, we don't just look away from him and remain normal. No, it's as if in choosing to make a decision to turn away from God and stop looking at his truth and receiving truth as he, as as it truly is, it's as if in doing so, we irreparably injure our eyes, spiritual eyes, so that we can't see anymore rightly. And this is why God's Holy Spirit has to work. You can't just reason somebody into the gospel. You can't just reason somebody into faith. Our spiritual eyes are broken from our rejection of God. They're irreparably damaged, Paul is saying. And Paul says, our foolish hearts were darkened. The end of verse 21, our foolish hearts were darkened. The heart is the center of the soul. It's the place of our intellect, our feelings, our affections, what we want, what we fundamentally think, what we feel. It's the center of who we really are. Paul tells us, or Proverbs 4 tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life from the heart we think, we feel, we want, we pursue. It's the core of who we are. And this is the place where God is meant to live, as Holly talked about during worship, where he is supposed to live as our greatest love, where he's supposed to live as our only creator where he is supposed to be honored as our, as our primary sustainer and provider, where he is supposed to receive the highest honor of our hearts, our deepest gratitude, our greatest thoughts, our firmest hope, and our surest dependable trust. But suppressing the truth about God, our hearts are now foolish and can't see him that way anymore. We can't see the invisible realities that we're supposed to see, that we were made to see when we were first created in the garden. And this word foolish in here that, where Paul says our foolish hearts were darkened, it, that carries the connotation of recklessness. And I thought as I read that, I thought, is there any better idea that could describe, I'm not trying to just throw shade just at them, but when you think about Adam and Eve, our first parents, is there any better word to describe that decision to reject God for no reason than than reckless foolishness? Paul says, that was reckless. And And if there really is an almighty, holy God of the universe, is there any better way to describe sinning against him than reckless foolishness? Like if he runs every molecule in your body, sustains everything you have, gives you every second of oxygen, is there anything more reckless than just despising him, insulting him, going your own way, rejecting him, ignoring him? And so... Paul says another consequence of our suppression of God is that our foolish hearts were darkened. Our hearts were darkened. Man turns away from the only light there really is and he finds himself in true spiritual darkness. And Paul's not talking about literal darkness. He's talking about losing the only spiritual light in the universe there is, the truth about God and his glory and all the moral spiritual darkness that flows into the vacuum of that loss. We've smashed the only light bulb in the room and kind of said to ourselves, we're fine. We're good. We're so blind. We don't know we're blind. We no longer truly know where we are spiritually and morally including we no longer know the truth that we we don't know where we are. We think we're good, many of us. But it's only through God that we can see anything. In Psalm 39, 36, 9, David says this beautiful thing. He says to the Lord, he says, in your light, we see light. In your light, we see light. The sun is the greatest light there is in the sky. And even though we can't fully look at the sun and fully take it all in by the sun, we see everything else by knowing who God is and embracing the revelation of who he is, that, that he is a holy and righteous and loving creator who created us to know him and enjoy him, to glorify him and trust him, be satisfied in him. And seeing that we learn the truth about what life is about. What's the meaning of all things? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be here for? But when we cover that light, cover that truth, we, everything else gets dark. And so as a race, we've chosen to suppress the light of truth about ultimate goodness, about love and justice and mercy sourced in, not in principles or impersonal abstract values, but sourced in this God this infinitely holy divine eternal creator who's worth all things who's greater than all things and in rejecting that we have we've just reaped the only thing we can reap it's just darkness there isn't goodness outside of God there isn't righteousness outside of God there isn't wisdom outside of God if you if you reject him you don't get any of his goodies. It's like when we're kids, we'll see this theme again in in coming passages. You know, you remember the idea when your your, your friend, your, your friend's over at your house and he's bringing all his toys and you love playing with his toys and then you and your friend get in a fight and he's leaving. You're kind of like, oh good, he's leaving. He's like, well, no, no, I'm taking all my toys too. And Paul's gonna explain that everything Everything good in the universe is from God. And if we kick God out of our playroom, all his toys go with him. Wisdom, righteousness, love, mercy. Eventually, eventually, we lose all that too. Though it's slow, he is being very merciful with us. But, but this, this idea of hearts that have become dark, This isn't just kind of a a confusion like, oh man, I'm, I'm in the dark here. I don't understand. I I don't know what to do because I don't understand the world. I don't understand the meaning of life. It's worse than that. It's, it's actually a a spiritual and moral darkness. It's, it's a wicked darkness. Paul says it this way in Ephesians five. He says, speaking of those who have, do not have the Lord. He says they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then he talks about all the ways that that hardness of heart leads them into greed and impurity. But darkness is a good word because in in a sense, Paul is describing this willful blindness that we've inflicted upon ourselves. So, what happens next in this awful digression for the human race? When we lose the true light, when we lose the only light there really is, what do we do next? Well, Paul says we make our own lights, we try to build our own lights. A theologian, Everett Harrison, one of the commentaries in the books I used to study, said this, man is a religious being. And if he refuses to let God have the place of preeminence that is rightfully his, then he will put something or someone in God's place. And he's what he's talking about is idolatry. That we will make our own lights. See, idolatry is... It, It's a response to a terrible problem in in the human heart. We know that we're not the source. We know that we don't create ourselves, we don't sustain ourselves, and we don't determine our our eternal destiny. We we know that. And so we have to have, we have to have something (laughs) That will sustain us, that will promise us life. We have to have something that will deliver us because we know we can't ultimately support ourselves, sustain ourselves. We know we're not the source of our own lives. So our first problem is we need a source. We know we're not the source. We need one. We eject the real source. So we got to create some sources here. We gotta create some sustainers, some creators some deliverers. If it's not going to be the true God, we, we got to find something. So Paul says in verse 22, claiming to be wise after spiritual darkness, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images to resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Man has sought to fill this vacuum of the loss of God, and this wouldn't describe our culture. Paul's speaking about the culture of his day, but the principles remain, which we'll talk about in a second. But Paul's speaking about filling the vacuum of the loss of God with with countless substitutes all the pagan deities that the wise men of these religions of Ur and Babylon and Greece and Rome and Persia and Egypt and Ethiopia and Asia and Europe created to be these substitute lights because they rejected the true light. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what does the Bible tells us? They they were covered with condemnation. They were aware that their lives were in great danger in some sense. And so they grabbed leaves and they covered themselves with leaves. And in a similar way, mankind has tried to find spiritual security, spiritual covering, after his rejection of God by worshiping creation, depending on what he can see, depending on to some degree what he can control so he makes gods. He says, oh son, I'm going to get life from you. River, you'll, you'll bring my harvest. Moon, you'll control fertility and whether we'll be able to have a good family. And if I pay homage to you, I can get you to give me my crops and give me my children and give me long life. Or maybe it's the cows or the birds or the locusts or the eagle or the stone. I got to find some source. I've got to find something because I'm not the source. So I'll I'll call this rock, my God. I'll call this bird, my Lord. So fueling this substitution was the sense that we had to find provision for life and protection from somewhere. So we turned the means into the end. In other words, God uses rain to bless us, but we'll call the rain our God now and ignore because we rejected God. God uses the sun to grow our crops, but we don't want God anymore. So we'll say it's the sun that we'll worship and serve. And Paul calls these so-called wise ideas foolishness. They're foolishness. In our modern West, many of us might consider ourselves way too sophisticated for this. But with much more intellectual rigor, maybe, We do the same thing. Wise men over the last two centuries have told us, we don't need a creator. The universe has always existed eternally. That was a very, very widely accepted scientific theory in the 1800s and 1900s. The universe has always been, there's no need for a God. There was no real proof but it's very attractive. It protects you from the need for a God. In the 1850s, Charles Darwin came up with a theory of evolution, which said that we don't need a creator because life, it arose randomly. It evolved purposelessly. It's an accident. So we don't have to worry about God. And and, and so we turn to ourselves. We don't turn to the river God or the sun God anymore but we turn to our own personal resources for thinking through these problems and we put our hope in our industry and our technology and our governments and our economies and we turn away consistently from God's moral call in our lives to worship him. We don't necessarily turn away from Caring about each other, caring about the earth. But as a race, we've turned away from putting Him first, honoring Him first. And we call that wisdom. In Isaiah 6, the angels surrounding the throne room of God are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. But mankind, Paul says, is not listening because our hearts have been darkened and we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So yeah, in the West in 2022, we may not be worshiping animals and birds and creeping things. It still goes on in other cultures. But we worship the creation over the creator in our culture. And even as believers, we struggle with this, right? We're, we're tempted to a subtler idolatry. In Colossians 5.5 5 and Ephesians 5.5, 5, Paul equates idolatry with greed. He says in both those places, greed is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. And th- this is a really fruitful thing to think over. Why is greed idolatry? What does he mean by this? And I I think what Paul means by this is that when we put our primary hope, when we put our primary hope towards something and say to it, you will save me. I need you. At that moment, that's a form of worship where we put our hope, what we invest with the glory of creation, the glory of the sustainer, the glory of the provider, the glory that only God is supposed to have. When we say to that thing, you're the thing I need most of all. When we say to that thing, I must have you, I need you. That's something that only God deserves or that God deserves above all things. And so Paul says that when we do that with the creation when we say to the creation I have to have you. I need you. <laughs> you're what will save me. You're what you're deliver me. You're what will deliver me. He's saying that's a form of idolatry. And, and of course, in Colossians and Ephesians, their money and wealth are principally in view in these passages. And, and don't you know, I know, the, 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 the longings in my heart that can say, if I just had more money, if I just had a 100,000 more dollars, if I had $10 million, all my problems would go away. Have you ever thought that? I have absolutely thought that. If I just had a million dollars, And when I think that way, I am offending God. I am grieving God who is jealous to be honored as my sufficiency, as my sustainer. But but it's not hard to see the logical connection between that kind of, if I just had this. Like for money, money. It's not hard to see that connection between that kind of mechanism in our heart and a kind of lustful desire, a controlling desire for anything we can put in there, the approval of people. If I just had the respect I deserve from my kids, if I just had the affection I should have from that person, if I just had the career that I've missed, if I just had that home, oh, my sweet mom, she loved the house that we left in 1981. And I feel like until the day that, almost probably till the day we died, she died in 2013, she just longed for that home. Longed for the, the memory of that home she had, this really beautiful house in Buffalo, New York, 100-year-old place. But I would think to myself, Mom, it's been 20 plus years, and your heart is still so ruled by that. And it was sad to see. But what I didn't consider, I don't think, I don't remember considering, is that God was jealous for that longing in my mom. And that but for God's grace, he was angry at being dishonored in that ungodly ache, if, if it was. And he could see in her heart. But it's, I certainly have had those ungodly aches. So it's very possible To take the things of this world and say, I cannot have peace unless I can have this thing. And to actually refuse to receive the peace of God because we will not take Him as a substitute for that thing, but He must provide that thing for us. It's, It's possible that at that point we are saying to such a thing, You are my God functionally. Brothers and sisters, We are not God, we are not the eternal and divine creator, provider, sustainer, and glorious ruler of this universe. And nothing in this creation is. And those things that we think will satisfy us, they won't, they won't. Maybe for a time, maybe for a season, but it won't last. Because he's the only eternal creator, sustainer, and deliverer. And he is the only one worthy of our greatest hope. And he is worthy in every and every need and desire of proclaiming to our souls, you're what I need, I need you. But our hearts are so darkened. It's so hard for us to see this. Even for us as Christ followers, it's so hard for us to see this. I believe that Christ has Cured us of blindness, but I also believe that that recovery is taking a really, really long time. For me, I think the antidote has been injected into my veins when I was saved, but I think my body and my mind are so full of darkness still. But praise God, He's not angry. Anymore at me. And if you're acknowledging his son and your need for his son's mercy, and you will have his son as your savior, he's not angry at you anymore. He has crashed into our darkness with the light of truth, and he has shown us his light, and that light is Jesus Christ who saves us from the darkness we have chosen, who saves us from the wrath for exchanging God for his stuff. Hebrews one puts it this way, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, By the prophets. I love this. This is God speaking into that darkness. Speaking into that rejection. Speaking into that human family that said no to him. And he's saying, no, no, no. I will not take no. I will not be done with you. And so he sends his prophets. Into that darkness. But greater than those prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is calling to us in the darkness and he's calling to us to receive his marvelous light. He's calling mankind to look back to him and have their eyesight healed and restored Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Oh, we were made for this. First and foremost, we were made for this, not for money, not first and foremost for each other and being slaves of approval and each other's opinions, of our appetites. We were made for something so much better. What an honor to be made to enjoy the glory of the greatest thing there ever it could be. I feel so bad for my cat. <laughs> I mean, I'm being facetious, but, but she's a cat. She's a dumb cat. She's not made to enjoy the fullness of God. Too bad, kitty. She doesn't know what she's missing, which is a mercy. But you're not cats and dogs and animals and beasts. You are made in God's image. You are made in God's image to receive and enjoy and treasure the most glorious thing there is. He is giving you the most incredible receptors. He in Christ is restoring to you, though it's taking longer than we all want, he's restoring to you the most incredible eyesight, the most incredible capacity to see and take in and treasure the most amazing thing there is, the glory of God. See, he he couldn't do anything kinder to you. There's no greater honor he could bestow on any being in the universe than to say, I designed you to have the capacity to be satisfied by my fullness, to be able to understand how beautiful and glorious I am and not be blind to it. There's no greater honor. There's no greater joy. And in those moments in our prayer closets and in moments of worship or fellowship with each other, we, we taste these glimpses of it. We know that's true. We know it's better than sex and power and fame. And, but we need to know more, don't we? So, so listen, can we just close just with a prayer this morning? Can, can we just spend some time in prayer I would just want to ask you to just spend some time pleading with the Lord that though you know him, that he might speed up your spiritual sight's healing. That he might give you a greater ability to see him better than you have right now. That he might further the sanctifying process so you can have wider eyes and more sensitive sight spiritually to see him as beautiful and glorious than you do right now. That's one prayer. And then the other thing I would just like to ask you to please do is to pray for people around you that you know have no sight of God. They have no vision for him. They cannot see him. They're blind, full stop. And just pray that God would bless them with spiritual sight. They might be saved and be able to see him So pray for yourselves to see better and pray for those who can't see in your lives right now that you care about, that God would give them spiritual sight. Amen.